This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Kids for Cash, the movie, The Young Turks, Brave New Films, Moyers and Company, The David Pakman Show, Time, Mumia Abu-Jamal, The California Prisoner Hunger Strike Solidarity, Mark Kilstein for Citizen Radio, and Activism from Best of the Left. She was a good kid. She was happy. I was known for being the jokester. Eddie, he was always a fireball. We were talking about how funny it would be if we made a fake MySpace page about my vice principal. I was trying to stay out of trouble. That's when everything started. Whatever sins you have committed, you can't go back and undo it. Chivarella was a no-nonsense, zero-tolerance judge. He always jailed kids. You are going to experience prison. I'll be glad to put you there. The way Chivarella ran the courtroom, you could have had Ethley Bailey there, and the kids would have gone away. There's a mechanism that takes over that keeps kids in that system. No one listened because we were kids. There was never any instance of guilt or innocence. They were locking him up. Really high number of kids appearing without counsel. We have no rights. He's in their custody now. It is unbelievable. We're talking about children. I wanted them to be scared out of their minds. I don't understand how that was a bad thing. Former Luzerne County judge faces charges tonight in a scandal known as Kids for Cash. $2.6 million in return for sentencing kids to juvenile detention. I never sent a kid away for a penny. I'm not this mad judge who was just putting them in shackles, throwing kids away. He went there as a free-spirited kid. He came out a hardened man, I would say. Here I was saying, we can trust that judge to be fair, and that's not what happened. I was scared every day. I was only 14. All those years, I missed. This is not a cash for this case. Back in 2009, a judge in Pennsylvania by the name of Mark Chivarella was arrested, investigated, and sentenced to 28 years in prison because of a cash for kids scheme. Basically, he was uh, funneling children into a private detention facility uh, for nonviolent offenses. There were some cases where uh, kids cussed out a friend's mom and as a result they got a juvenile sentence for that there was one student who showed up to school with paprika she got a sentence for that i mean absolutely ridiculous so to give you some numbers on how many lives this terrible judge ruined uh... he sentenced around three thousand children in a similar matter and was later sentenced himself to twenty eight years in prison for financial crimes related to his acceptance of two point two million dollars as a finder's fee for the construction of a four profit facility in which to house these so-called delinquents. Now, I'm glad that they did a documentary about this. We had done the story when the uh, news first broke about this, and uh, I, you know, I continue to be as outraged today. Look, part of the problem is that once you have for-profit prisons, people are going to try to profit off of imprisoning people, right? Once you set up those wrong incentives, it's only a matter of time before people do terrible things. So this guy gets a couple million dollars and ruins 3,000 kids' lives because of it. Now, by the way, not all of those kids were innocent. You know, obviously, you do need juvenile detention for well, some let reasons. Let me tell you how many of them were innocent. Uh, Chivarella had uh, 2,480 of his convictions reversed, 
and expunged. Yeah, and so he was a terrible, terrible guy. And not only was it the minor offenses that Anna was talking about, there was a one kid who didn't do anything wrong. His dad was trying to scare him straight by planting pot on him so that the cops could say scare him and stuff like that. Yeah, dad of the year. Yeah, and don't ever do that. Don't, especially in this police state we live in now. Don't get the cops involved. How many stories have we done where they call the cops in to calm their son down and then the cops shoot the son, right? Don't, don't. So anyway, he done in this case, and they go to this uh, judge. Judge is like, yeah, guilty. Throw away. The They're like, no, wait, 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 wait. No, that's not what happened. He's like, I don't care what happened. I'm making money off of this. Mm -hmm. Throw away the kid. And the kid goes there, and by the way, he started doing pot inside the jail because the influence inside there. Right, so you go uh, behind bars and you become an actual hardened criminal because of the environment that you're in. By the way, so the documentary um, is called Kids for Cash, and it, it looks like it's going to be incredible. It hasn't been released yet, but we do want to show you a little teaser for it, so take a look. Whatever sins you have committed, you can't go back and undo it. Chivarella was a no-nonsense, zero-tolerance judge. He always jailed kids. You are going to experience prison. I'll be glad to put you there. The way Chivarella ran the courtroom, you could have had Ethley Bailey there, and the kids would have gone away. Yeah, because they were always guilty, because he made money off of them being guilty. It's so sick. So that kid that we were talking about, he didn't become a hardened criminal because he smoked pot in jail. Uh, he later had to went to back to jail a couple of different times because he learned other things in that jail uh, and was so scarred by the experience. And eventually, he committed suicide. And so his mom is in the documentary yelling at the judge after he gets convicted. And it's heartbreaking. But remember, the core of the problem is if you set up the wrong incentive structure, you're going to get the wrong results. If you make for-profit prisons, some people are going to take the money to imprison people for no reason at all. Okay, And you're going to have terrible, terrible injustice. And I gotta end on one note because you know we talk about how we criminalize people for nonviolent drug offenses. We lock away more people than any other country in the world. When you look at our youth, it's even worse. Two million children are arrested every year in the United States. Ninety-five percent for nonviolent offenses. Amazing. And sixty-six percent of children who have been incarcerated never return to school. The U.S. incarcerates nearly five times more children than any other nation in the world. That last stat is the most amazing of all. I mean, we imprison five times more children than China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, you name it, right? The most draconian states in the world. And they don't come close to us five times as much. And 95% of those kids for nonviolent offenses. What in the world are we doing? When you turn everything into a for-profit system, then of course this is the direction we're going to go in. And of course we're going to have all those kids locked up. And we have the wrong mentality. It's not just the for-profit prisons, man. In America, everything is solved by imprisonment, solitary confinement, force, and more force. Right? And then what, they'll, what will they say in the end? Well, we had to do it because all they understand is violence. No, unfortunately, all we understand is violence. Since we are the mothers of this earth, it's time we start being good mothers from the birth of our children. No time for sleeping, teaching to fight when for the right reason. It's your time, it's your life, live it. Proud to be black, young, and gifted. Lifted by the knowledge of taking the right route. Game.
gang violence needs to be wiped out. One and the same, everyone came in the same chains. Caught with the same aim, brain games, and names change. Destroyed the black male crack jail and semi-automatic and static if the crack fails. So since we all talk the same slang, stop killing my brother because we're all from the same gang. Don't There is an industry here in America that wants to lock you up for as long as it can. The more people it can warehouse in cages, the more money it makes. And which private prison company made 1.7 billion last year alone? CCA, or Corrections Corporation of America, is the largest for-profit prison operator in the United States and currently has around 90,000 privatized prison beds in around 20 states. They get paid per day, per inmate at their facility. What this does is it provides an incentive for them to maximize the number of people incarcerated in their for-profit prisons. It's like the hotel industry. The hotel industry wants to keep their beds full as much as possible because it means more revenue. Same thing for the private prison companies. About half the people in American prisons are in for nonviolent offenses, and we have more people in prison than any country in the world. CCA has a vested interest in mass incarceration because that's how it generates its revenue. It's how it makes money for its shareholders and corporate executives. Now that states across the country have budget problems, CCA is masquerading as the solution by offering to buy all their prisons. CCA and other private prison companies uh, say that they can save money because they know that's what politicians and policymakers want to hear. Some studies, including a 2010 Arizona State Auditor Report, found that private prisons actually cost more than public prisons once all the corresponding factors are, uh, are considered. Even worse, CCA's proposed contract with 48 states would guarantee a 90% occupancy rate for 20 years. How could a state guarantee that? By making sure harsh laws are passed. CCA has spent nearly 19 million dollars lobbying federal officials on a host of issues. It has put millions more into state and federal elections, and it works with ALEC, a group that pushes pro-corporate legislation. ALEC wrote more than 85 bills to promote prison privatization and increase sentences. One of these bills was Arizona's controversial SB 1070. The law allowing police to stop someone for looking Hispanic and detaining them if they weren't carrying proper papers. This law was almost word for word as Alec wrote it. And you thought that was all about keeping immigrants out. Nope. It's about locking immigrants up. This is a moral and ethical issue that we should not be locking people up so that companies can generate profit. Fight the prison profiteers. Tell Congress, no handouts for private prisons at prisonprofiteers.org. Click here. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction 
restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. California, uh, former Governor Schwarzenegger said they had been investing too much in prisons and not enough in schools. But ultimately, it turns out that what he was proposing wasn't altogether downsizing, it was privatizing the, pr- yes. the prisons so that the responsibility for them uh, was transferred to for profit corporations. And I ask you, what happens? when there's a profit motive to send people to prison? (laughs) Well, when there is a profit motive, uh, it ensures that more and more people will be locked up and remain locked up in order for companies to maintain their profit margins. Um, You know, the largest prison company, private prison company in the United States, um, the Corrections Corporation of America, sent a letter to 48 governors, basically, with an offer. We will buy your state-run prisons in exchange for a promise, a guarantee that you will keep these prisons filled at least 90% capacity. Um, You know, these kinds of agreements and incentives are not in the public interest um, you know, what would be in the public interest is, you know, a commitment to reducing crime so that our prisons empty. But instead, private prisons want a commitment um, from state governors that these prisons will be kept filled by any means necessary, which virtually ensures a high level of commitment by politicians to these get-tough measures, mandatory sentences, war on drugs to keep prison beds filled. So, In fact, Arizona, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and I believe Virginia all have privatized prisons that are kept at, 80, at 95 to 100 percent occupancy because they have guaranteed that occupancy to uh, the private industry. Even if the crime rate Falls. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, that's what's most worrisome, <laughs> is that they will insist and have insisted on keeping their beds full, even if crime rates are relatively low. And today, you know, crime rates nationally are at historical lows, but incarceration rates um, are higher than they ever have been. Well, and some people argue, as you know, that the crime rate nationally is down because we've been locking up the people who commit the crime. Yes, which has been proven to be demonstrably false. Um, you know, if you look at the data, it shows that, you know, states that have been on an incarceration binge um, do not necessarily have lower crime rates than states that have incarcerated people at a lower rate. There is no clear connection between incarceration rates and crime rates. And in fact, in cities like Chicago and in New Orleans, New Orleans is the incarceration capital of the world, um, 
you know, they have some of the highest violent crime rates uh, in the country as well. And the same can be said for Chicago. In fact, you know, a growing number of researchers and sociologists now believe that um, incarceration rates, high levels of incarceration actually can be a contributor to high crime rates because you're incarcerating, incarcerating such a large percentage of a community or population, you're ensuring that um, people are going to be locked out of work and locked out of housing and living you know, in a state of desperation um, for the rest of their lives. So I would hope that as we build this movement to end mass incarceration, we will not be tempted to make purely fiscal arguments about the need for reform, but ensure that the way we engage in our advocacy helps to inspire much greater care, compassion, and concern for the very people who have been locked up, locked out, and that we have been taught to despise. But when you look back historically at slavery, condoned by many people who quoted the Bible, when you look at what happened after the Civil mm -hmm. War, it took a civil war to free the slaves, and then they were put back into a form of slavery with the coerced uh, labor, forced labor. And then you have Jim Crow laws, you refer to, look at the racial violence that extended right on through our time, where do you get any hope that this ideal of compassion, that, that we can treat a society such as you describe, given our conflicted, often savage past? I, I get my hope from this revolutionary idea that doesn't seem to die in the United States. Um, this idea that all people are created equal with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was a revolutionary idea in the Declaration of Independence, and it was wholly incomplete. It was all men are created equal, and implicitly slaves were left out, um, you know, poor people were left out. Women were left Women out. Women were left out, right. Um, but it was a revolutionary idea then, and it remains a revolutionary idea today. This idea that keeps changing and growing and expanding as our consciousness changes and grows and expands, that all human beings are created equal and have certain inalienable rights, it won't die. It didn't die with slavery. You know, a war was necessary to end slavery. But this idea has continued to survive and it's continued to grow and we see now that in the United States we do believe that women are equal. We have an idea that people of all races are created equal. We are now beginning to see that depending on, regardless of your sexual orientation, you are equal. This idea itself has not died. Um, and so I think the worst thing we can do is to fall into a sort of cynicism where we imagine nothing can ever be done. Um, you know, these new systems of control just keep being born. This is just part of human nature. Well, it may be part of human nature to fear one another, um, but there is also a part of human nature, I believe, that wants to see uh, the equality, even divinity, in each other and to honor it. And that spirit remains alive in the United States today. And if we give up on it, then I think we're giving up um, on the dream of truly thriving, equitable, multiracial, multiethnic democracy.
Al Jazeera America has an interesting write-up about how the annual cost for housing an inmate in New York City jail exceeds four years at Harvard. One year in a New York City jail costs more than four years at Harvard or a similarly priced Ivy League school. This is based on a report by the Independent Budget Office, which found that in 2012 it cost New York $167,731 to hold each of its daily average of just under 13,000 inmates, or about 460 per inmate per day. Undergraduate tuition is at Harvard is just under $39,000 a year, or $155,500 for a four-year degree. Of course, many of those inmates were being held for drug offenses, surpassing the number of those being held for murders or robberies. The inmates are disproportionately African-American and Hispanic, as we know, Louis, um, and many of them are kept in these very expensive facilities. There is, of course, Rikers Island, which is just uh, basically from the LaGuardia runways, the runways at LaGuardia Airport in northern Queens, you can see Rikers Island. It's just off there. It's like it, it's its own facility. It has its own power plant. It's incredibly expensive. The issue here to me, uh, there's two issues. Number one is we have such a serious problem here in terms of I understand some criminals can't be rehabilitated, but look at what we're paying for one year for nonviolent drug offenders and murderers alike, right? It's for both. You could literally send them to Harvard for four years for less money, and many of these individuals can be rehabilitated. Nonviolent drug offenses, in many cases, uh, 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 not large amounts of, of often marijuana, that really warrants paying more in a year for the, this person to keep them jailed than what, what it costs for four years at Harvard? I'm willing to bet a lot of these people need no rehabilitation and you could just find them. Well, then we'd be making money. I mean, take these numbers and extrapolate them and look at how much money it's, it's costing the entire country. Uh, it's, it's incredible. And then num the, the number two element here, of course, is the, the insanity of the prison industrial complex. Many of these are not private prisons, but we know that part of the reason why there is such an interest in running, operating, buying, and administering private prisons is because there's so much money to be made because the prisons are stuffed full of people who are there for nonviolent drug offenses. So not only are you literally ruining people's lives in many cases for crimes that pale in comparison, crimes that pale in comparison to murders and armed robberies and so on and so forth, but you are feeding these private prison companies, and because of the ownership stakes that many big banks have in them, you are also feeding Wall Street. It's, it's just a, a horrible, vicious circle. San Quentin State Prison is where California sends many of its most dangerous criminals. From lifers who will never leave these high walls, to others like Anthony Alford, whose rap sheet has sent him to prison four times. I got attempted murders. I got 
assault with deadly weapons. I got uh, drug sales. I got, you name it, like I said, I done done a lot of different things. As good as California is at locking people up, it has had a harder time keeping men like Alfred from coming back. You gotta make them an inch wide. Seven in ten California inmates end up back in prison within three years of their release. We're gonna do it here. Uh, we're in here learning uh, the beginning steps of becoming apprentices in the sheet metal industry when we get out upon release, you know. The state has tried several programs, like this vocational training, to help inmates find work and stay out of trouble once they leave here. But Alfred has found another path he hopes will keep him from coming back. And let your eyes close. So this is the beginning of letting go of distractions. So releasing our... This is Alfred's weekly yoga class. ...outside of ourselves and directing our attention and our awareness to the world inside of ourselves. James Fox is with the Insight Prison Project, a nonprofit that has been offering yoga classes at San Quentin for close to a decade. I felt from the very beginning that there was something about the tradition of yoga that wasn't like an exclusive practice for those people who could afford to take classes at a, at a yoga studio. The medium security H unit is not your typical dojo, but it's where Fox believes he can address a prison culture that he calls a cauldron of violence. Prisons are breeding grounds for violence, for negativity. It's a lot, it's a lot every day. The whole stress with somebody telling you what to do from sunup to sundown to tell you when to eat, when you can go to the bathroom, when to do everything. Somebody's controlling your life completely. Most inmates here have anger and addiction issues, which Fox believes a yoga practice can address. A challenging yoga class involves self-control and self-discipline and developing impulse control, not reacting when you're in a difficult pose by getting out of the pose right away, staying with your breath and breathing through the difficult moments of a yoga practice learning how important the breath is in calming the mind and calming the body. For me taking yoga and other classes and so forth, I've definitely built on my tolerance and patience to where no matter what I'm going through, now I actually think before I react. I used to be a more reactional person to everything. Let your body and your mind settle into the sphinx pose. When you're on your elbows and your hands are out and you're sort of up like this, you know, it's like, um, you know, just being still in the moment, you know. Robert Colbert finds Fox's class challenging, but helpful for coping in a prison environment where violence can erupt at any moment. There's the chance of violence at all times. Just being here, you know, and just finding calmness and, you know, just getting a peace of mind. I think that's a big step for me anyways. On your breathing, feel the aliveness in your body. Feel the shift in energy that's taken place. From Bringing yoga to San Quentin was not an easy sell. At first, inmates told Fox yoga was for sissies. And oftentimes I would get whistles and catcalls because I'd be walking in with a yoga mat under my arm. Fox didn't back down. Instead, he found it a teachable moment and related the argument in a way the prisoners would appreciate. And it gave me the opportunity to relate directly a yoga practice to what it really means to be a warrior. Fighting has very little to do with the warrior spirit. That the warrior spirit 
is really developing the mental, the emotional, the physical, and the spiritual discipline. Through that discipline, Fox tries to make these men realize that gangbangers are not warriors, but cowards. Forward, just a couple. In many respects, guys come to understand the cowardice in the kind of violence that's being perpetrated on the street. Controlling impulses extends beyond the yoga class, especially in overcrowded prisons. And Californias are notoriously overcrowded. So much so that the U.S. Supreme Court has ordered the state to reduce its prison population by 33,000 inmates. Alfred says the yoga has helped him cope with the cramped quarters of San Quentin. Even to be in this dorm at this point in time, uh, yoga has been a benefit to me. Whenever something irrational is happening, to be able to, to walk away or something, that, it helps on all different types of levels, mentally and physically. Traits that will also help Alfred cope with the outside world. He is due to be released in late 2012. My incarceration have come from um, immediate negative reaction to things. There's a lot of different things that um, I can blame it on, on, on why I did it, but none of it is reality for what was just me reacting to every moment. Plan to get out and be a better father and a better husband, you know, a better family man, and just a better productive citizen in general. I plan to just be somebody that actually goes along the line of doing right and not so much wrong. But what about those lifers who will never step outside these walls? For them, Fox has a different challenge. Lengthen the right leg. Look, they're basically looking at the situation. This is their life. This is their life, and they're trying to get the, the most out of their life that they can. These men may never re-enter society, but Fox hopes by improving their lives he can help change the culture inside San Quentin. And that takes compassion for those society has given up on. But everybody is worthy of redemption. If I looked at myself, or if I looked at my children, or if I looked at my brothers and sisters, my family, and I said, people aren't worthy of redemption, write them off. If somebody really makes the effort to make amends and to rehabilitate themselves, then they deserve that opportunity. under the unblinking eye of the state. It is a cruel irony that while public discourse is thick with words like freedom and liberty, the bodies and lives of millions are trapped within a system that only knows how to humiliate and exploit them. There really is a prison industrial complex, and those who deny it most are those who profit from it most. For like the Wizard of Oz, they dare not allow you to 
peek behind the curtain. There, by political design and judicial fiat, you find unchecked, unbridled power wreaking havoc on the lives of the poor in the name of corrections. What is their kind of corrections? Repression, pure and simple, from people doing lifetimes in prison holes to naked brutality under cover of state law. Thanks to the first black president, Bill Clinton, it is virtually impossible to file and prove a civil rights lawsuit in court. For as Clinton demonstrated, it takes a neoliberal to respond to a wave of lawsuits by changing the rules to make filing even harder. Don't change the conditions, just change the rules. That's neoliberalism. Those rules are still the rules enforced today. For it matters not that there is a black face in the White House. For truth be told, he doesn't make the rules. The conditions, the life options, and even the post-prison possibilities are worse and worse for more and more people. That has not changed. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. We never My name is Marie Levin. My brother has been locked in solitary confinement for 29 plus years. The last time I was able to touch my brother was in 1982. Between 50 and 100 prisoners have announced plans to begin a hunger strike. Prisión estatal de Pelican Bay anunciaron el inicio de una huelga de hambre. As many as 6,600 prisoners in 13 state prisons refuse meals. Thousands of inmates have been on hunger strike for almost two weeks. My life changed on July 1st, 2011, when the Pelican Bay short corridor prisoners began a hunger strike that spread across the state of California, uniting all racial lines, uniting all differences, and coming together in unity to bring awareness to their conditions of confinement. And long-term confinement. In-group punishment and administrative abuse. Abolish the debriefing policy and modify gang status criteria. Provide adequate and nutritious food. Create and expand to start the programming. There are some things that we cannot do. Some of the other things like a calendar, um, a cap, those are things that actually may be doable. But um, I don't know that we're going to be pressured or coerced into doing these things. Federal law prohibits research chimpanzees to be held in solitary confinement. Torture is torture. It's not justifiable for anybody in this society. 
Some of these prisoners reportedly are in horrible health. Most have reportedly lost between 20 to 25 pounds. We are starting to see physical effects that you would see in starvation. These men are killing themselves potentially for fresh air and sunlight. There's a core group of us who are committed to taking this all the way to the death if necessary. None of us want to do this, but we feel like we have no other option. Coalition is acting in solidarity to amplify the voices of the prisoners. Do something more than just be a, a spectator, than just be a symbolic uh, activist. One of the main requests that the prisoners made was for support on the outside. There's been people that have been working around the clock to um, gain the most basic of human rights for these prisoners. It was just about to get national recognition and they cut it off. They, they agreed to make some change. Corrections officials told lawmakers in Sacramento yesterday they will reform the way they run isolation units in the state. that they won't even approach the negotiating table uh, in the name of saving human life is unforgivable and it is intolerable. If this is going to be a success, it's not going to happen unless people get involved. The bottom line is these strikers are fighting for their humanity. They're us. The power that people have outside is numbers. Tell a friend. Let them tell a friend. Whether it's through a prayer, whether it's through handing out leaflets, make it big. If you can participate and help now, you can stop the upcoming generation. That might be your family that can be behind walls going through the same exact thing. My brother's 55th birthday. We will be going down to Corcoran State Prison to rally. I'm going to join in the rally and I'm asking you to do the same. The United States holds more prisoners in solitary confinement than any other democratic nation in the world. The system's roots are wholly American, and it has a tragic and disturbing experience in this country that lessons can and should be drawn from. But for some reason, a blind eye is turned to this failure of the past. There is a slight silver lining to this all, though it'd be foolish to set high hopes. Mississippi is just one of a handful of states that has been rethinking and reevaluating solitary confinement over the last year. And last month, the Federal Bureau of Prisons announced that for the first time in its history, 
It will review its solitary confinement policies. The announcement followed the first ever congressional hearing on the practice, held last June by the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Human Rights. During the hearing, a former Texas death row inmate addressed the Senate panel, recounting his decade-long experience in solitary confinement. Anthony Graves spent 18 years behind bars, 10 of those years in long-term isolation. He was wrongfully convicted in 1994 of assisting in the brutal murder of six people. And while his conviction was finally overturned in 2006, and he was released from prison in 2010, an innocent man, fully exonerated, he will never truly be a free man. His testimony shed light on the true horrors of solitary confinement and its power to forever break the human spirit. When listening to Anthony Graves' words, it's worth thinking about inmate number 112 and the test subjects at Marion Prison and Bradley Manning and the 80,000 people plus held in solitary confinement right now. My name is Anthony Graves, and I am death row exoneree, number 138. Like all death row inmates, I was kept in solitary confinement. Under some of the worst conditions imaginable, with the filth, the food, the total disrespect of human dignity. I lived under the rules of a system that is literally driving me out of their minds. I survived the torture. But I, but those 18 years was no way to live. I lived in a small 8 by 12 foot cage. I had a steel bunk bed with very thin plastic mattress and pillow that you could only trade out once a year. I have back problems as a result. I had a steel toilet and sink that were connected together. And it was positioned in the sight of male and female officers. Degrading. There was a small, very small window up at the top of the back wall. In order to see the sky, you would have to roll your plastic mattress up to stand on. I had concrete walls that were always peeling with old paint. I lived behind a steel door that had two small slits in it. Those slits were cut out to communicate with the officers that were right outside your door. There was a slot that's called a panhole, and that's how you would receive your food. I had to sit on my steel bunk like a trained dog while the officers would place their trays in my slot. This is no different from the way we train our pets. I had no television, no telephone, and most importantly, I had no physical contact with another human being for 10 of the 18 years I was incarcerated. Today I have a hard time being around a group of people for long periods of time without feeling too crowded. No one can begin to imagine the psychological effects isolation has on another human being. I was subjected to sleep deprivation. I would hear the clanging of metal doors throughout the night or an inmate kicking and screaming because he's lost his mind. Guys become paranoid schizophrenic, 
and can't sleep because of their hearing voices. I was there when guys were attempting suicide by cutting themselves, trying to tie a sheet around their necks, overdosing on their medication. Then when I were the guys that actually committed suicide. I would have to live with these vivid memories for the rest of my life. I would watch guys come to prison totally sane, and in three years they don't live in the real world anymore. I know a guy who would sit in the middle of his floor, rip his sheet up, wrap it around himself, and light it on fire. Another guy who would go out on a recreation yard, get naked, lie down, and urine all over himself. He would take his feces and smear it on himself as though he was in combat. They ruled he was competent to be executed. I knew guys who dropped their appeals, not because they gave up hope on their legal claims, but because their conditions were just intolerable. They would rather die than continue to exist under such inhumane conditions. Solitary confinement, it breaks a man's will to live, and he deteriorates right in front of your eyes. I have been free for almost two years. And I still cry at night because no one out here can relate to what I've gone through. I battle with these feelings of loneliness. I've tried therapy, but it didn't work. I haven't had a good night's sleep since I've been out. I have mood swings that just causes emotional breakdowns. I don't know where they come from. They just come out of nowhere. I am living amongst Millions of people out here, but I still feel alone. And I cry at night because of these feelings. I want them to stop, but they won't. the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the campaign to end solitary confinement in Illinois prisons. 2,200 people are held in a tiny cell for 23 hours each day with no access to commissary or phone calls in the state of Illinois. This predictably results not in rehabilitation, but in the emotional, mental, and physical deterioration of inmates subjected to this human rights violating practice. The Illinois Coalition Against Torture, an association of individuals and community-based organizations formed in 2010 to end torture on all levels, local, state, and international. Drawing on the Chicago City Council's 2012 passage of the ICAT-sponsored resolution to make Chicago torture-free, they have just launched the campaign to end solitary confinement in Illinois. Their petition, backed and distributed by Credo, is aimed at Governor Quinn and Attorney General Lisa Madigan. They're demanding an immediate end to solitary in Illinois, where 85% of the 
those imprisoned by it are being disciplined for minor infractions. In states like Mississippi, where solitary confinement was drastically reduced in 2007, the changes have led to healthier prisoners, increased safety, and reduced costs to the state. ICAT intends to follow Mississippi's lead. With funding approved to turn the Thompson Correctional Center in northwestern Illinois into a federal supermax prison, reforming the way Illinois houses inmates has never been more important. The stories told by those who survive solitary and become activists are heart-wrenching and must take their place among our country's unfortunate history of slow progress on civil rights. Lee Savage, who spent six and a half years in solitary, wrote a farewell letter to her confinement upon her release. Here are her words via the fantastic blog Prison Culture. Quote, I was at your mercy, which I never received any, regardless of how I begged and pleaded with you to stop beating me, to stop hurting me, to stop breaking my heart, and please just let me hold on to one little hope. You never ceased in your cruelty, and I responded the way you wished, like a feral animal lashing out at any and all human contact. I've never felt so ashamed, so helpless. Stand with the more than 2,000 people in Illinois who languish in cages with their humanity held captive just as Lee described. Share their stories, add your name. As the ICAT petition says, this is inhumane and unacceptable. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration, the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? A Texas death row inmate by the name of Ray Jasper has written an open letter uh, before he's set to be executed in March of 2014. And in the letter, you learn a lot about him, and he is one of the rare cases where it seems like the prison system has actually rehabilitated someone, but unfortunately, he will be executed regardless. Now, um, he was convicted uh, after participating in a robbery in 1998 and murdering um, uh, a record studio owner by the name of David Alejandro. Alejandro. So uh, there he is, and you read his 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 piece, you know, his letter, his open letter, and it's kind of incredible just how knowledgeable he is. You know, he quotes Thoreau, Martin Luther King Jr., and he talks about a lot of the viruses that are within our justice system. So let me give you a little taste. Okay, first, a point of clarity: he didn't do the killing, right? Now he is part of that crime, so. Um, if you're a party to that crime in Texas, you can still get the death penalty. He, in fact, he says that there are 50 guys on death row in Texas who didn't actually do the killing. Now, in his case, uh, his accomplice already confessed and and did a uh, plea deal, so he would get a life sentence, saying, "Yeah, I shot the guy." Okay, so we know, in fact, he didn't shoot the guy, but he was part of the crime. And you don't just get death penalty in Texas for. Uh, murder, you get it for felony murder, okay? Mm -hmm. That means if you shoot someone and don't take any money from him, you won't get death sentence. But if you take a nickel from him, well, you just did felony murder, even though you're not the one who did the shooting, you still get a death sentence. Yes, exactly. So um, here's what he had to say. Um, he talks about empathy a lot throughout uh, his letter, and I thought that was interesting. Empathy breeds proper judgment. Sympathy breeds sorrow. Contempt breeds arrogance. Neither are proper judgments because they're based on emotions. That's why two people can look at the same situation and have totally different views. We all feel differently about a lot of things. Empathy gives you an inside view. It doesn't say, if that was 
was me. Empathy says that is me. So he's a huge advocate for empathy, and he feels as though you know our justice system in the United States has none of that. Um, so that was an interesting point to make. So look, if you watch the show regularly, you know that I don't often have sympathy for a lot of people in his position, right? Uh, we, in fact, earlier in the week we did this story of a guy who's on death row, and he's they some claim he's mentally challenged. I wasn't buying that argument, and I didn't have much sympathy for that guy. Okay, you read this guy's letter. There's no way you don't come away thinking this guy is not a threat to society. Uh, he's at this point really well educated, self-educated, really smart guy, and making really good points. It's not to patronize him. Like, oh, isn't it interesting? Like, I'm not one of those liberals who's like, oh my god, he's on death row and he wrote a letter. Okay, no, no, no. This is an excellent letter. And the reason I say that in this context is because he's right. The most important thing is in order to make the proper decisions is empathy because it's not a matter of being emotional about a case right mm -hmm. it's a matter of saying hey what would be fair is if it applied to me if that happened to me this here's what I would want to happen right exactly. and in a lot of ways it's the golden rule logically so and and he for example he mentions in the piece Chuck Colson who used to be in the Nixon White House and then when he, he and he used to be tough on crime and then he got busted and went to prison and all of a sudden he's like oh my god I didn't realize prison was so tough and we were so wrong to people in prison. And he set up prison ministries. By the way, Chuck Colson, as he points out here in this letter, predicted in the 1980s that prison was getting so out of control uh, that by the year 2000 there'd be a million people in prison. Well, today there are two million people in prison. So he does talk about the justice system. He says the justice system is truly broken beyond repair. And the sad part is there's no way to start over. Improvements can be made. If honest people stand up, I think they will be made over time. Um, so what, what I really like about his letter is he talks a little bit about the private prison industry and how locking people away has now become profitable. That's why you have tough on crime legislation being proposed and it passes. A lot of times the private prison industry will lock to ensure that those types of laws pass so we can funnel more and more people within that system and then taxpayers pay for their business model. They're not, they're not really private. He, he made great points there. Before we get to that, I just want to say one thing about the last comment you made. Mm -hmm. he, he said there that, well, you know, things could get better if we take the right direction. And I, honestly, as I'm reading it, I, I was skeptical of that. I was like, come on, man, really? The prison system in America is so bad, it's going to get better? Then he uh, said... Thoreau proposed that one honest man could morally regenerate an entire society. I was like, damn. Okay, I'm like, and it gave me a little bit of hope. Like, I'm reading, I'm like, hey, you know what? Maybe Thoreau's right. Maybe he's right. And then he said, a man once said that revolution comes when you inform people of their rights. That man was Martin Luther King Jr., right? Mm -hmm. And that's what he's doing here. He's telling us what the problem is, and he's saying, now, look, you never know what ripples that causes. So, Look about what he says about the private prison industry here. Yeah, and I, I love I love that he addresses the private prison industry, and he talks about the type of slave labor that happens behind bars, right? So let me tell you what he said about that. If a prisoner refuses to work and be a slave, they will do their time in isolation as a punishment. You have thousands of people with a lot of prison time that have no choice but to make money for the government or live in isolation. The effects of prison isolation literally drive people crazy. That is such an important important point to make, right? Because what we are seeing when it comes to labor in the United States is organizations like ALEC 
lobby to make sure that unions go away and certain jobs that the average American works for and makes decent money in now get shifted to the private prison industry or the prison industry as a whole. And these uh, prisoners have to do the same jobs and get paid virtually nothing for it. And if you disagree with it, well, they're going to put you in isolation and make you crazy. By the way, isolation, there needs to be a law passed, a federal law. The only time you get to put someone in isolation is if they are a threat to other prisoners. Okay, yeah, if they and are significantly so. Yeah. Look, if they were taken away too lightly, solitary confinement. So uh, there's two elements of this uh, privatizing, right? One is they privatize the prisons in the first place, which gives them an incentive to put more people in prison because they're going to profit off of it. Then the second part is the corporations that make the prisoners do stuff for them at an incredibly low rates, and they're imprisoned, so they don't really have a choice. And if they say no, then they get solitary confinement. And Honestly, what it reminded me of is in some recent movies, if you've seen, if slaves dis- did something that was disobedient, they would get put in a hole, okay? And so that's literally what we're doing to these guys, okay? Now, you might say, oh, I have no sympathy for him. Okay, but he says, look, even if it's not me, it's not a guy in a death row, a lot of guys are in here for nonviolent offenses, and if you don't work as a slave for almost no money, then you get put in the worst possible situation, solitary yes. confinement, where you're going to lose your mind. Here's another great quote from him. He said, it's not about crime and punishment, it's about crime and profit. Yeah. And that's exactly right with our system right now. Like he, he talks about it so perfectly. The other side of the coin is there are those in the corporate world making money off prisoners. So the longer they're in prison, the more money is being made. It's not about crime and punishment. It's about crime and profit. It's so, it's so true. And, you know, oftentimes you get the perspective of journalists that do their research on the private prison industry, but very rarely do you get the perspective of people that are within that system, that are victims of that system. And I'm not saying that, you know, he's a victim. He committed a crime. He was convicted. He has to face the consequences of that, even though I do not agree with the death penalty. But the reality is there are so many people behind bars right now for nonviolent offenses. Some of them are serving sentences that will destroy their lives. They'll get out at some point, but there's no recovering from it. And it's all because we want to ensure that these freaking corporations make as much money as possible. It's disgusting. One more thing that he points out about the incentive system, right? He says, how can those that invest in prisons make money if people have sentences that will allow them to return to free society? In other words, they don't want to rehabilitate you in prison because if you did, you might not return to prison. Okay, and they make money when you come back into prison. The private prisons make the money, and the corp- and the companies that profit off of the basically nearly free labor profit off of it. So they don't want to rehabilitate you. They want to keep you in that system. How do you think we got to two million people in prison? You think that was just an accident? You think it's just because we're getting tough on crime? No, because people are making a buck off of it. I thought that it was an excellent letter, and it touched on so many other issues within our justice system. He talked about, um, you know, lethal injection and how, you know, originally we were getting uh, the lethal injection uh, from companies, pharmaceutical companies in Europe, but then they saw what we were doing with the death penalty here in the United States. They disagreed with it and they stopped supplying us with the medicine, or I shouldn't say medicine, but with the drug. So as a result, now we are going to other pharmacies that give you a substance that hasn't even been approved by the FDA, and they're using that on prisoners. I mean, he's touching on all of these significant issues. It's a long letter, but boy, is it worth the read, okay? He talks about the jury system, and he says, look, they tell you you're supposed to get a jury of your peers, but a young black woman was kept off of my jury. Why? Because she said that she felt that the police were intimidators. But she's like, he's like, a jury of my peers totally feels that way. 
That's how the police treat us all the time. That would have been a jury of my peers. He said instead, there were no black people on his jury. There was no black people, he said, in the entire court when he was being tried. And he cites an example that someone else used. He said, imagine if a white person goes in uh, and there's a crime in a black area, and then when he goes to his uh, trial, Mm -hmm. um, the judge is black, the whole jury is black. They said, don't worry, we're going to give you a couple of lawyers, they're black, okay? And all the witnesses are black. And you're just a white guy. And they say, okay, no, no, we'll throw a couple of Hispanics on your jury too. Okay, now do you think that white person really thinks they're going to get a fair trial? Is it, would that stand up in any uh, constitutional challenge? You know it in your heart it wouldn't, right? They said, what, you only found black people for the jury? That's crazy. But he says it happens all the time that it's the reverse. It's only white folks on the jury. They purposely exclude black folks from the jury because they say your experience is not valid. He talks about the pastors in Texas that are going around preaching for the death penalty. Now, he didn't mention this, but whenever I think about the death penalty and so-called Christians that are in favor of it, you know who got the death penalty? Jesus Christ. Okay, But nonetheless, and it says in the Bible, turn, you know, uh, turn, turn the, the cheek, cheek, turn another cheek, etc. But they don't give a damn about that. And he says, he, he's a religious guy, he says he prays to God every day. Okay, And he said, quote, the blood of Abel cried vengeance, the blood of Jesus cried mercy. Okay, That's in the Bible. Now, he said people get the death penalty when a jury has judged them to be a continuing threat to society. And they have to actually, in the state of Texas, say there is no hope for redemption for this guy. Okay, If they believe there is no hope for him, then they can give him the death sentence. So now think about how unchristian that is. Because he says as he, over here, that in itself is contrary to the whole Christian faith that believes no one is beyond redemption if they repent for their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. It is the exact opposite of Christian belief. Mm -hmm. Yet there are pastors like John Hagee that he mentions here going all around the state of Texas saying, give him death, give him death, give him death. No empathy, no redemption, and certainly no concern for what Jesus Christ preached. Okay, And I'm not a religious guy. Uh, I care about reason and having justice in our society. And even if you're not a Christian, uh, and you don't believe in what Christ taught, you have to be outraged by what we're doing to these people. And to me, uh, what's happening to Ray Jasper and so many people like him is beyond all bounds of reason and decency. And you don't have to agree with what he did, and you can, by the way, give him a life sentence too. But it's not about him, it's about the prison system and the fact that people are making money off of turning people into, unfortunately, the modern equivalent of slaves. Hi, Jay. This is Katie near Philadelphia. It's late to offer a comment on this topic, but a few weeks ago, in discussion of gender issues, a man who said that most of us would consider him straight and cis explained that he identified more with the term queer. Your audience was pretty hard on him and asked him to get back in his defined space. This surprised me, as generally it's the right that struggles to understand irony and hypocrisy. 
If trans men and women assert the right to define themselves, which I certainly support, how is it that they would deny that right to others? Hey, this is Grace here from North Carolina. First, I just want to thank you so much for what you do and also how you welcome dialogue in such an engaging way with your listeners. I want to respond to a few voicemails left after show 818. I want to first just say that I respectfully disagree with Matt and Chris, who stated that we are all a little queer and it's not normal, respectively. That's like a straight person telling me we're all a little bit straight. Queer isn't not normal. That's like saying minority is not normal. In both cases, it's simply not the majority. I'm not at all straight, and neither is my partner. Of course, there's a spectrum, but the ends of that spectrum exist and should be accepted as much as all other points along it. My sister, on the other hand, I can tell you is straight, period. There's nothing queer about her or her husband. They're not homophobes in the slightest, rather our greatest supporters. It's just not how they identify. Cis or straight is just a legit a label. It's LGBTQ or I for that matter. I know there are those who think this alphabet soup of labels should be all tied up into one word. As much as we'd like to say we should be colorblind and live without labels, I think it's just the opposite. We are all human, but we are an array of beautiful, unique colors, not a pile of colors so mixed up we've turned gray. We are an array of flavors that I hope never blends to just be bread and water. This also gets into the discussion you had on words. I understand Troy's sensitivity to the term queer as a lesbian in the South. This is another reason why I think perhaps an umbrella identity doesn't serve us well. We are human. We come to know one another in our world by language. It can, at times, be a bumbling, stumbling tool, but nonetheless, it is how we come to know. Ask any trans person how important the label man or woman means to their self-identity. Ask any African-American how important Black History Month is or how important Barack Obama's breaking the glass ceiling of presidential history is. True diversity lies in the embracing not the immersing, or excuse me, enmeshing of these truths we hold dear. Just my two cents. Thanks again, Jay. About me. I'm a gay man in my 50s. I was out and politically active in the 70s and 80s and directly experienced the community discussions that resulted in calling ourselves queer. I was a member of various California and national gay rights and AIDS activist groups and read many essays on this topic. The recent discussion on the use of queer as a self-label is grossly lacking in historical and social context. In the early 20th century, queer was a mild pejorative that grew in its negative connotations over time until by the 70s it was equivalent to nigger in that it could not be spoken in open group or even in group, uh, even if the group agreed with the sentiment, by that time being primarily a slur used in aggressive acts of hostility. In the 60s and 70s, a few alternative writers began using queer occasionally as an identity descriptive, in the same way some black writers, especially poets, were using nigger to refer to themselves at that time. Such use was contested and often disavowed by the homosexual movement at large, again, as the same way the black community resisted use of the term nigger in that way. In the 80s, the idea of reclaiming words took hold with a growing segment of the gay community. Um, so what is reclamation? Well, nouns and adjectives are descriptors. They may be used inaccurately, but are not inherently positive or negative. That is an emotional judgment that is added by the speaker. Queer can mean someone with non-heterosexual preferences, as does dyke, fag, homosexual, gay, lesbian, etc. Any of those words can be used positively or negatively. We harm ourselves by accepting the judgment as a part of the definition. 
By calling ourselves queer, objectively, to mean people with diverse sexual identities, we don't stop its use by others as an insult, but we do stop its ability to insult us, as well as publicly, honestly affirming who we are. If you're not getting how this works, consider the attempts in the recent decade to use gay as an insult. If someone said, don't be gay, you might get angry at the intent to insult, but if you're an out homosexual, you wouldn't be offended by the word itself, as it just describes the obvious. And if you're not homosexual and not prejudiced, you wouldn't find the word to be inaccurate. Or you would find the word to be inaccurate. With a little effort, I'm sure you can think of better examples that apply to your own identity. So back to the 80s. Reclamation reached the culture at large, and use of queer in pop culture, like the song Johnny Are You Queer, was not meant to be insulting to gays, though the writers probably did mean to be shocking by using what was still a fringe word. By the late 80s, there was already a sizable segment of the out gay community, bi community, and other groups that either used the word queer or accepted its use by others to refer to them. There are many groups today that use queer in their title. So let's just Google it, kids. But be careful. Queer by its nature is an umbrella term. I may mean it to refer to the fact that I'm homosexual, but it's also entirely appropriate that one of your callers, who is hetero, used it to refer to himself to say that he's not bound by gender-specific dress codes. Because many homosexuals learn the negative judgment associated with words before they learn the meaning of the words themselves, there will always be some who find it difficult, if not impossible, to hear others use words like queer. So this is a sensitive issue. But it's also true for the word gay and any other label we might come up with. To sum up, banning words does not protect us from their hateful use. And when we do successfully ostracize words, we only clear the stage for other names to take their place, while simultaneously committing ourselves to be insulted by whatever new term the hateful wish to employ. What's important is that people be allowed significant leeway in selecting the label they find most comfortable for themselves, and that use of those words by others is always appropriate. But of course, hate speech, no matter how polite the language, is not. Thank you, Jay, for creating and maintaining this excellent podcast. Goodbye. Hi, Jay. This is Morgan from Chicago again. And I'd like, just like to ask men to stop calling themselves women. Just because you're a man who likes women, just because you wear a kilt, does not make you a woman. Just because you're gay, you're not a woman. Women go through a lot of tough experiences. We deserve to have ourselves respected. Gay men are not women. Men who like women are not women. Those two callers who call themselves lesbians, they are not lesbians. Lesbians are women who have gone through not only the terrors of being gay, but also the horrors of being a woman, period. I mean, it's ridiculous that we have to constantly give up the suffering that we go through just by biologically or internally being a woman. And men want to claim that as their own. It's not their own. And I really wish they would just stop. Thank you. Hi, Jay. This is Elka in Fort Wayne. Long time. No call. I know. Been busy. Sorry. But been listening to the shows. And this call is in response to your final comments, to Professor Ramble's comments about respectability uh, politics. And I just have two words. And one of the words that I want to say to you in response to your comments is exactly, and the second word that I want to say to you is amen. You nailed it. 
You are absolutely right. The problem with respectability politics and playing it is that it is not going to make racism go away. It is basically saying if you as a person of color or as a LGBTQ person or as a woman or whatever happens to take you out of the center of the circle and put you on the margins, whatever that, that thing is, if you just do this, if you play this game, if you do A, B, C, D and you jump through these particular hoops, then life is going to be hunky-dory for you and wonderful for you, and that is a lie and it is bullshit. And so to Professor Rambo and to anybody else who thinks that white liberals are trying to tell black folks or anybody else how to live their life, um, no, he's missing the point. The point is that respectability politics are not going to make racism disappear. Thank you, Jay. Good shows. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all her work on our social media and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And today, frankly, there were, there were so many good voicemails that I let them go longer than usual. And so that's basically going to be it for today. Join the conversation if you are so inclined. There's a lot of good topics uh, kind of flying around right now. And uh, and support the show if you think it does a good service. You can get access to bonus content on top of just supporting the show by becoming a member. Uh, the bonus episode I just put out discusses not only some uh, background stories uh, surrounding my recent move, but also the politics of abortions in the future, 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 which is fascinating stuff. Uh, so sign up and check all that stuff out at the membership tab at the website. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And to those who have already signed up to become members, uh, you're absolutely the ones who make the show possible. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the belt, way yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a crying shame how we get so trained we can't see past all the sad stories and wonder what we're missing See